They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is God's word. Please remain standing for a moment. Almighty God, um, boy, let these words of Paul become our words. To declare the hope that we have solely through Jesus Christ. Be with our pastor this morning as he preaches. Prepare us to hear and to obey your very word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> the day that um, our India team got back from India, Donald Trump won the presidential election. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing in your mind, but we can thank the India team for that. <laughs> I suppose um, if it's a good thing to you, so I've heard on the news, you don't live near the water. And if it is a bad thing to you, you live near the water. Have you heard this? <laughs> you look at um, the, the, this is besides the point, but if you look at Rhode Island, um, I, I saw, did you see this in the newspaper, in the Providence Journal? Um, 
that the, the east half of, of Rhode Island uh, voted for Hillary and the, the west half voted for Trump. So it's just like divided and they're on the water and they're not. So that's where I got that from. A little bit of information for, for you. <laughs> well, anyway, let's talk about scripture. <laughs> um, it's so good to have you guys here this morning. God bless you. So good to see some new faces. I hope that you're enjoying yourself this morning. Every single Sunday at, at church, um, we, get to, we only think about Easter with respect to this a lot, but every single Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we meet on Sunday. That's why we meet on the first day of the week. And um, what a great um, thing to be able to do every Sunday. We don't reserve this just for, sun, for Easter Sunday. Because Jesus Christ is alive, we have new life in Christ. Our sins are forgiven, and we have an eternal hope. Amen? And we gather together. You, you saw that today, right, in our, in our memory verse. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, especially as the day draws near. We have the unique opportunity to gather as the body of Christ, to worship the risen Jesus, and to proclaim his name. And that's what we're doing, and that's, what, that's why we fellowship around his word. So God bless you. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Um, if you are kind of new here, feel free to stick around. We stay, and we have snacks and coffee and all sorts of things. We'd like to get to know you better. But our scripture text says, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm going to say something very bold. All people who have not come to love and follow Jesus resist him every day. Every day. Now, you might, you might not be conscious of this resistance. You might not even be aware that it's him that you're resisting. But there's something in your gut that is resisting something, and that someone is Jesus. Unless we come to faith in Christ, every day we kick against the goats. And consequently, every day we are persecuting Christ. Now, I'm going to explain this to you. This is what our sermon is about. You say, well, that's kind of interesting. I don't feel like that's what I'm doing. Let me explain to you why, and I hope that you understand why by the end of this. I titled this message, for some of you who might follow us on Facebook, I, I usually post the title of the sermon and the sermon text online, but I titled this, this message, Hating Jesus. And it's a strong and provocative title. I know that. I'm not trying to be edgy or slick or cool, which I am all of those things, but... <laughs> Um, but I titled this message, for that, this message that for a reason. Now, not many people, even hardened atheists, would say, yeah, I hate Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a handful of people in this world would actually say that, but most of us don't say that, and even atheists wouldn't say that. They don't hate Jesus. But the sad truth is, whether we're conscious of it or not, our fallen heart is bent on resisting and persecuting and hating Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. This sermon's going to talk about how our hearts turn from this resistance, this hatred, to joyful communion. This is what happened to Paul, known as Saul in this text. This is what happened to Saul. He turned from resisting the church, hating Jesus Christ, to being its most famous advocate of all time. And that's what happens to every converted heart. Every person that comes to believe in Jesus Christ, they... they transform into a person who has resisted him into a person that greatly loves him. How does that happen? That's what this is going to be about. There are three chapters left in the book of Acts. So we're almost done. 
Um, it actually hasn't, you might have felt like this has taken a long time to get through the book of Acts. I think it's been about a year, but honestly, for 20, 28 chapters, that's not that bad <laughs> um, that we got through it that quickly. Um, actually, that, that is kind of a quick way to go through the book of Acts. You could be in this book for years, but we wanted to really teach you the heart of the message of it. <clears throat> But there's three chapters left. We're in chapter 26 today, and we got two more chapters after this. And it's basically, these final chapters are basically Paul's march to Rome. His intention was to go to Rome to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth, right, and to specifically the Roman Caesar. The end of his life, we'll talk more about this later on in Acts, but the, the end of his life, he would actually be executed uh, by the Roman Caesar and have his head cut off. But this is Paul's objective, and these chapters are the narrative, chapters 26 through 28, what occasioned him getting to Rome. We saw, we saw Paul in past weeks leaving, you remember this? He left the Ephesian elders and they were all in tears because they loved him greatly. But he said, I need to go to Jerusalem. So he journeys to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he goes into the temple to worship God. And when he gets there, a large crowd recognizes him because he's, he's a very famous Jew in his own right. He was a Pharisee. So they all knew who he was. He, they all knew he had come to faith in Christ. So they didn't like him. So, that they, so they, a, a large mob formed to try to kill him. So if you remember, the guards, the chief of police, grabbed him so that he wouldn't be killed and basically rescued him. He was taken then from Jerusalem to Caesarea because his life was threatened. Remember this last week when we learned this from Pastor Creaney. <clears throat> his life was in danger, so the chief of police basically took him to, to Caesarea to save his life. And there he made his defense to Felix, not the cat. <laughs> um, he made his defense to Felix, who was a governor. Two years go by, where Paul is in prison, kind of nice accommodations, but two years go by, Felix is replaced by Festus. And we, we see this in chapter 25. And basically, after this long period of time, Festus says, I'm appealing to Caesar, send me to Rome. And Festus says, okay, that's what we'll do. But before he actually sends him there, the king shows up to visit Festus. He was a new governor. The king shows up, and he basically, they basically end up in dialogue. He's there to congratulate him. And Festus says, hey, I have this guy. And there's all this religious stuff. This guy's Roman, remember. There's all this religious stuff. People, the Jews are mad at him. They want to rip his head off. I don't even really know what's going on, Agrippa. Can you, because you're a Jew, he's a, he was the king of, of Israel, because you're a Jew, can you just talk to him so I even know what to tell Caesar? He's, he's even going on because I don't even know what to say. <laughs> right? So, so Agrippa says, sure, I'll talk to him. Let's talk. So in his hearing, Paul tells Agrippa this. Paul, um, Agrippa shows up. He's got the attention of the Apostle Paul. And now just picture this, because this is incredible. So far, Paul has, the, has had the attention of some pretty incredible and powerful people. Right? Governors, now the king. But he also had the, 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 the attention of peasants and Pharisees and all sorts of people. The amazing outlet to spread the gospel that had been granted to the Apostle Paul. It's fascinating. So he says to Agrippa... He shows up, he says, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. We just heard this. Now, who's King Agrippa? Agrippa was a vassal king of Israel. Now, what's a vassal king? A vassal king basically is like a puppet king. The, the Romans pretty much 
ruled the world. And what they would do is they'd go into a country, take over that country, but keep the leadership and power under the authority of the Caesar. Does that make sense? So Agrippa um, was, was the, the great-grandson of King Herod, and he was given authority to rule over Israel under the, the ultimate authority of, the, they call it the suzerain king, which was the Caesar of Rome, okay? So <clears throat> Agrippa is the vassal king of Israel under the authority of the Roman Caesar. Herod the Great was his great-grandfather. Now, this was a notorious family. If you don't know who the Herods were, um, I think Morgan uh, addressed this a little bit last week. But this was an incredibly notorious family. If you read the history of the Herod family, it's, it's uh, fascinating and horrific at the same time. They were decadent, violent. They furiously resisted anything related to the Messiah because most of the Herods didn't want any other king coming in taking their crown. Does that make sense? So Herod the Great slaughtered innocent children at the birth of Christ's narrative. Recall this? That was, so this is Agrippa's great-grandfather. This is this guy. This is his heritage. Herod the Great's son, his name was Antipas, he had John the Baptist beheaded. You remember that story in Scripture? So Herod, Herod the Great's grandson, Antipas, had John the Baptist's head um, cut off. Antipas's, so um, Herod the Great's grandson was Agrippa I. He murdered James, the Apostle James. The, Paul, the Agrippa Paul's speaking to is Agrippa II. Paul stands before the great-grandson of Herod the Great and now the son of Agrippa I. Notorious family. Whose knees would be knocking? <laughs> I would. I don't even think I would have made it there. I would have been dead at the crowd like long ago. But he somehow makes it there because he keeps his wits. History knows that this Agrippa II wasn't quite as violent but very decadent. He married his own sister. It's a very, very um, bizarre um, life that he led. Paul is typically courageous in the king's presence. His knees aren't knocking. He's not knowing what to say. I, I mean, he is knowing what to say. He's very sure, not of himself, but of the Christ that who had sent him. For the third time, and this is what he does with Agrippa. For the third time, we read this three times in the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke decides, I'm going to retell Paul's conversion, which is significant that this story was told three times in the Gospel of Luke, how the Apostle Paul came to know who Jesus Christ was. So for the third time, he articulates his conversion story and ultimately his commissioning, in other words, his mission. In becoming a Christian, Paul had been given three things, three different things, a vision, an identity, and a hope. And these are going to be the three points of our sermon. A vision, an identity, and a hope. Please follow this, because this is so important. Should you ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you don't know who Jesus Christ is this morning. This is what will happen to you if you come to know Jesus. You will have a vision, an identity, and a hope. Okay? You will turn from resisting Jesus and his people, hating Jesus and his people, to loving them, becoming part of them to a vision, identity, and a hope. So let's look at the vision. This is really articulated in verses 9 through 14 of the text. Verses 9 through 11, we have Paul's account of his life before he came to know Jesus Christ. He was in firm opposition to any follower of Christ and to Christ himself. Now, there were reasons for this. He believed um, there were some more superficial reasons. The heart of the reason we'll get to in, the, in a second, but some of the more superficial reasons were they thought that they were getting rid of certain 
dietary laws and wanting to destroy the temple, but there was something at, at greater heart that was the issue. So ultimately, though, he hated Christians and wanted to see them wiped off the, the planet. He imprisoned them, he sentenced them to death, he hunted them down, he tortured them, he went to foreign places to find them. As a matter of fact, the story he's telling, he is leaving his home, going to Damascus to find Christians, to bring them into prison. Our text says, did you see this? He was obsessed. Obsessed. Now you think like, well, you know, I've become obsessed about things at times, like really wanting to be an awesome you know, race car driver or, or a great carpenter, whatever it is, I become obsessed by it. The, this is not used in a complementary way, though. The word actually means, and, and most commentators, commentators agree on this, that he, was, he had a raging fury. He was a madman. This is the word that Paul described himself with. He says, Agrippa, I was insane with anger. And I wanted to wipe all Christians off the face of the earth. So these people wanting my head on a platter, I was with them. I was right there. Until he had a pivotal encounter with Jesus Christ. He had a revelation of the risen Savior. And he records this clearly for Agrippa. On his way to Damascus, he and his companions, this is his vision. He and his companions are pinned to the ground. They are blinded with a brilliant light and they hear a loud voice from heaven. You say, oh, this is fantastic. This couldn't have happened. Well, I believe that there is a God, and I believe that God's word is true. So just entertain me for a moment. Just assume that it is. He hears a loud voice for, from heaven, a brilliant light, and he's pinned to the ground, and everyone is with him. It was the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and he announced to, to Saul something very important. Okay, now hear this, because this is, if you don't know Christ, this is what he's announcing to all people who haven't found Christ yet. Number one, why are you persecuting me? Number two, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The other two accounts of Paul's conversion in Acts leave that part out. Okay, it doesn't say it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So, so in this instance, obviously Luke is deciding to present a more fuller account of, of, of all the words that were said and not just some of them. Why are you persecuting me? And it's hard for you to kick against the goats. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are kicking against the goats. That means something very simple. That he is there, he is with you, he is whispering to you, and you're fighting it. That's what's happening. You're fighting it. Let me explain more. The vision Paul received that day, it's the same vision that all followers of Christ encounter before they come to him by faith. That is... First, Jesus is risen. Second, we have resisted and hated him. And third, he has been present all along, goading us to him. You know what a goad is? It's like a sharp, <laughs> it's like a sharp needle that you stick an animal with so that they go in the right direction. Right? They're going off in the wrong direction. and uh, It's like a trial. This is the revelation given to Saul and every soon-to-be Christian. Paul's reason for hating Jesus Christ and the Christian message was also what brought him to know that he was desperate for it. Now that's profound. You don't get it yet because I haven't explained it, but just kind of table that. The, the same thing that made him hate Jesus is the, is the same message that would make him realize, I need him. I need him. It crushed him and saved him at the same time. 
And, but when it crushed him, it infuriated him like it infuriates us. But it eventually liberates us if we come to believe and trust in Christ. And the, the explanation to this is simple. So please follow. Paul believed the opposite, excuse me, Saul, before he knew Christ, was convinced of the opposite message that he preached in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, and here it is. The just shall live by faith alone. He believed before he came to know Christ that it was actually the opposite. The just shall live by their tireless effort. See? As a Pharisee, he reversed the message that we make ourselves right with God, we purge ourselves from all of our impurities by ritual obedience to the Old Testament law. Morality is maybe more of a modern word for us. If we're just good, some people in here might be religious, and the common message among a religious people is, if we're just kind of good enough, God's going to be okay with us. So it's the same message. The just shall not live by faith alone. The just shall live by their own perceived good works. So Saul was convinced of this before he came to know Jesus Christ. He devoted his life to it, to be made right with God through his tireless effort. In Philippians chapter 3, you know what Paul says of how he felt at the time. And chances are you might feel the same way if you don't know Jesus yet. And you're just trying to be good enough just trying to measure up. He says in Philippians, um, excuse me, Romans chapter 7, verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was in intended to bring life actually brought death. In other words, I thought that my work would bring life and righteousness but it actually brought the opposite. It convinced me that I was utterly helpless and guilty. He was unable to save himself. And that's the goad, friend. That's the goad of life. That's the goad of Christ. That when you spend your life trying to measure up, to keep your nose clean, all the things that you think will make you matter in life or give you a, a healthy self-esteem. When you, when, you when you realize you never live up to the standards, it brings death, doesn't it? It crushes your spirit. That's the goad. That in all our attempts to prove ourselves, we only find death. We fall short. We miss the mark. I heard someone say, well, this is all very religious. I'm not very religious, but you know, so I don't really connect with this. Well, consider it this way. I heard someone say it like this. Forget about God's law. Forget about his moral standard. What's yours? Think about it. Well, you know, to be a good person, to not kill people, right? to not be late for things, to not be prejudiced, to work hard, to not give people the bird if they cut me off. Right? Yeah, you all failed at this one, didn't you? <laughs> right? I know you did. Um, so, so, we, right? like, so these are our own kind of things that, that we live up to. Where do we get these from? Well, society, maybe parents, teachers, people we look up to. We just kind of have these standards. I, if I live my life this way, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good guy. Right? Don't we do that? But, but let me ask you this. If, if there is a God and you died and he only judged you on your own personal set of laws, how would you do? I think I would fail notoriously, even mine. You know, good people wake up early. <clears throat> Failed it. 
<laughs> right? I fail it about four times a week. Right? Like, so, so you have this law in your heart. You know, whatever your law is, whenever you fail your law, don't you just kind of feel like a bum? Right? I wasted money here. Didn't buy the right thing. I lost something. I lost my job. We, we have our own standards of what it means to be right, to be, to be approved. And, and those are just ours, friends. So this is my point. Imagine a holy God who is holy every day, who is good every day, living up and measuring up to his standard. We don't do it. We fall short. And isn't this incredibly infuriating? How dare God not accept my good works? How, how, that's, this, is, this is the source of our anger towards Jesus Christ. We should be able to get our own glory. We should be able to just kind of work. Why is he so upset with my sin? You see what I mean? This is where it comes from. Imagine living your whole life attempting to earn the favor of your dad, but being told that your works cannot please him. That was the message of Paul. You see? You see why it's angering? When someone comes up to you and says, hey, listen, I know your dad. And no matter what you do, no matter what works, good works you do, even for him, they won't please him. As a matter of fact, there is filthy rags. So no amount of living up to his standard, no amount of even living up to the law, because we have failed it so often, then we're hopeless. You see, the, the very law, this is Romans 7, that should have brought me life, actually brought me death. Jesus Christ said, you cannot please God with your works. And that's why Saul hated him. And that's why Saul hated the church. You see? What did Cain do? When he was told, your works don't please God, Cain. What did he do? Killed his brother. Oh yeah? What about the older brother? Remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? The older brother was moral. He kept his nose clean. He stayed home with dad. He didn't rob his money. Right? But he didn't love his dad, did he? He wanted his stuff. At the very end of that story, you know what he said? You know what, dad? This, this idiot son of yours who, sins, who, who squandered everything away, you, know, you, you bless him. You take him in back as your son. You've never given me a party. You've never killed the fatted calf for me. Why was he good? He was good to get his dad's stuff. He didn't care about his dad, you see? So, but what do we do? This is what Cain killed it. When our works aren't pleasing to God, we, we start killing people. <laughs> and we start hating the message. See? Cain killed his brother. The, the, the older brother hated his brother and his father at the same time. The reason, <clears throat> friends, in our unbelief that we hate Jesus and resist his message, message and his people it be, is because it makes it impossible for us to repair the damage. And therefore, we get no glory. See? We don't like that. We are glory hounds. But you, know, you want to know, this? here's the ironic twist. We're gonna get, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians? You know that popular passage on marriage? We all know it as Christians. Maybe you're, if you're not a Christian, you're somewhat familiar to it. Husbands love your wives, wives, you know, as, as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And then it kind of goes on for a little while and it says, because Christ gave himself up to her, for, for her, to display her as glorious. 
You say, you want glory on your own, you can't achieve it, but when you come to Christ, you get the greatest glory, more glory than you'd ever imagined. You see, what, what I said in the beginning, the same message that causes you to hate Jesus eventually brings you to him. It's beautiful. But nevertheless, it enrages us. It infuriated Paul to think that his righteousness was filthy rags, that there was nothing he could do to satisfy the anger of God towards his sin, that sinners... That it made him so, ups, so angry that sinners like these Gentiles could simply confess faith in Jesus and have all of their sins wiped away when he had spent his whole life obeying the law and he was still guilty and condemned. That's, that's horrifying to us in our minds, isn't it? It doesn't seem fair. How is it that I've been trying to please God my whole life and I haven't pleased him, but this pig of a Gentile who has never known anything about Yahweh, is instantly saved on faith in Jesus Christ, that his sins are forgiven and separated forever. You see? See why he's mad? Sinners on confession of faith in Christ will be loosed and rescued. There is no mountain to climb. There is no magic berry to eat. You don't have to show up three times a week to church to take away your sins. The moment you repent and believe in Christ, it is gone forever and you are saved. That's the message of the cross, that's the message of the gospel, and that's what got Saul's, Paul's head cut off. The grace, but the, see, you see, the grace is the goad. I found that very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In other words, the, the recognition that I couldn't live up to the holy standard of God, which made me angry at God and his people, actually saved me. Because it finally led me to the one who could save me. To be desperate for him and humble and to trust him. He knew that as good as he could be, he'd fall short. And friend, the grace is the goad for you too. If you're resisting coming to faith in Jesus because perhaps you think your value is found in some personal achievement or some relationship or some vocation. That's your commandment, right? That's your command that you think will bring you life. If I have this person, if I have this job, if I have this money, if I have this security, then I'll have life. Oh, but friend, it wrecks you, doesn't it? Every time. It just brings death. It won't bring life. For Paul and for everyone who would come to faith in Christ, <clears throat> we're going to hate him first. And then we're going to see the very reason that we hated him is the same reason that he becomes the most beautiful person we ever met. They see that he makes it so you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Right? Because Jesus has proven himself for you. Jesus has done it. Upon faith in Christ, all the obedience of Jesus is credited to you. I want you to think about that. How many times, just catalog it in your mind. How many times do you know? I, I, you know sometimes, I don't know if this happens to you, maybe I'm just a little crazy. <laughs> sometimes I wake up feeling very bad guilty, shameful about something I did 10 years ago. It's just the memory comes into my head and I feel like such a worm. Does that ever happen to any of you? 
I'm like, where did this even come from? How do you deal with that? You want, you want to know what's happening? You know that you've fallen short. You know you've done it. And so have I. So what do you do about that? Well, well, you know what most of us do? We spend the rest of our lives trying to make up for it. <clears throat> I'm going to call the person and apologize. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay back the debt. Here's the money I stole. Whatever you did. You know, I'll, I'll try to make up for it. And then you know what happens five years later? You still wake up kind of shivering and sweating. I can't believe I did that. No matter what you do, it doesn't make up for it. And you want to know why? Because it can't. Ultimately, you have violated God's holy law and you stand condemned because of it. And I know that's a hard message, but friend, Jesus Christ's perfect obedience, he lived the life. He did the right thing for you in your place because he knew you wouldn't. And when you come to him by faith, all of your sinful disobedience becomes joyful obedience in God's eyes. Every single wrong thing you've ever done to God as he looks at you becomes something that you had done right. That's what you get when you come to Jesus Christ by faith. Sins that are forgotten, a life that is purified, and you are held in the powerful arms of God. I'm so getting ahead of myself. This is our new identity, okay? Upon faith in Jesus, all the obedience of Christ is credited to anyone trusting in him. And that vision, that revelation, births in us a new identity. That's our second point, a new identity. Clearly seen in Paul's second part, verses 16 through 23. Or the, uh, actually, I'm sorry, the closing. Paul made clear to Agrippa that the death that comes through the law is cured by the work of Christ. Can you just say amen to that? The death that you carry, maybe, like I said, you don't even know what the law is, but the death you carry by the shame that you carry for ways that you failed is taken care of by Jesus Christ. That's the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. Faith in Jesus identifies you. You get a new identity. Who are you, friends? You say, I'm a son. I'm a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I'm a lawyer. I'm an accountant. Well, as a Christian, you are a son of God. And that means something very powerful. I want you to follow this. The believer is no longer relying on his own personal willpower, on his own moral standing, or on his own moral successes to please God. He is relying on the perfect life lived by Jesus. That means something very powerful, that if you fail, God still loves you. It's still gone, it's still forgiven, and you can get up in victory. That's what that means. The believer is free. And listen to even just Paul's words in his text as he articulates, articulates them. He says, you're made right with God by grace. That's in verses 18 through 20. You're rescued from darkness to light. You see, your eyes are open. You see, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself that you've been saved by the work of Jesus. You're rescued from darkness to light, verses 17 and 18. Also in verse 18, your sins are forgiven through the work of Christ and not your own. That alone should just drop you to your knees and cause you to follow Christ for the rest of your life. Why do Christians obey? And this is how you know you're, you really get this. By, you said, Christians don't get saved by their our obedience, but Christians are always going to obey. And here's why. Because you can't approach this message. You can't really see what's going on here without it changing the way you live your life. It changes you. And if it hasn't changed you, you don't get it. You still don't get it. As believers in Christ, we're new people with a new identity. Grafted into the family of God by adoption. This is what Paul says. You, 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 did you have a jerk dad? Maybe. 
maybe an abusive mom. Well, I got good news for you. Come, to faith, come by faith to Jesus Christ and you will have the King of Kings, the creator of all things as your new dad, your adopted son. That's his gift to you by faith in Christ, adopted into his family. You all, but this is kind of a side note, it's not in my notes, right? Why do you want, why does having a bad mom and dad crush you? Because you know in your gut you're supposed to have a good one. Well, why do you know you're supposed to have a good one? Because you have one. God made you. He created you. You see, all good moms and dads and all bad ones should point us to the fact that there's a great one in heaven for us, the real one, our real creator, the one that we've actually been longing for. So friends, that, if, if you've had an abusive family, I have good news for you because that's not your real family anyway. I don't mean to demean family relationships, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is you have the greater dad, the greater creator, who applaud, in Christ applauds you every day, is satisfied with you every day, is pleased with you every day. And this is my point with that I'm trying to make here. We are commissioned to testify to all people that what Christ has done for us as Christians. This is what Paul says again in verses 16 through 18. So as believers in Christ, we're a people with a new identity. You want a new identity this morning? Have you failed a lot? Or maybe you've, at least you've perceived yourself as having failed. You think you're kind of a bum. Your parents are jerks. Your wife or your husband left you. Your kids don't like you. Well, I got good news because you can have an, a new identity in Christ this morning, this moment, by faith in Jesus. Your sins can never be, will never be remembered anymore. They're separated as far as the east is from the west, declared forever righteous, forever worthy. You'll never again be charged with any penalty or any condemnation for any of your mistakes. Did you hear that? The judge of all the earth credits you with the righteousness of Christ, the goodness, the purity, everything. He was obedient and submissive to the Father all the time, just like we were supposed to be. But because we weren't, he was, he stood in our place, and by faith in him, we are that person. That is always submissive to God. Amen? That the, so the judge of the earth credits you with the righteousness of Christ. That God in heaven sees you always as having honored him, never having disobeyed him, and consequently always pleased with you. You know what is said of Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How many people would love to have a dad that said that to them. This is my son and whom I'm well pleased. He's saying, wow, Kyle, you must have had a really bad dad. I didn't. <laughs> I had great parents, okay? So don't think I'm saying this about, you know, I had really good parents. They failed, you know, well, we all do. But um, anyway, I'm going to stop sweating now. <laughs> all right. Imagine having a dad, though. You know, some of us had, have had train wreck parents, awful parents, pe parents that have abused us, beat us, treated us so terribly. But just imagine those same parents coming up to you and saying, this is my son, my daughter, whom I'm well pleased. We all long for that, friends. We're desperate for that. You were made for that. That's why you're desperate for it. And in Christ, you got it. You come to Christ by faith, the God of all heaven and earth looks at you and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased.
You say, well, God, even after I... You know what I did? You know the things I've done? The people I've hurt? The websites I've visited? The drugs I've taken? I divorced two women. And I was awful to them. Like me? Even me? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Come to Christ by faith. You know, Christians, friends, you know, I, I think we forget that message. We still end up feeling sometimes like we're, he's not pleased with us. So we get back into the dance, into the charade. But, but do you remember that? that, that bro, brothers, sisters in Christ, we are the beloved children of God in whom he is well pleased. Because Jesus is alive, never to die again, always interceding for us to the Father in heaven, our position remains permanently intact, no matter how we fail. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. And that's the message of life. What's more, as his adopted children, the love the Father has for Christ is equal. Just picture this, okay? The love that the Father has for Jesus, the Son, is equal to the love he has for you. He doesn't love Jesus more than you. He loves you the same. <laughs> but Jesus was always good all the time. And I'm always bad all the time. It's the same. Because Jesus died for you. And he rose again. He conquered death for you in your place. If you trust him by faith, he'll conquer death for you in your place. You're so closely united to Jesus. Did you hear these words? It's, it's easy to miss them. You're so closely united to Jesus Christ that to persecute you is to persecute Jesus himself. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To persecute you as his children, those who have put faith in him, is to persecute Jesus himself. That's what, he thinks of, that's what your God in heaven thinks of you in Christ. So what are we waiting for? Come to Christ, friend, by faith. Put it down. It's not worth it. The sin that we carry, that, you know, David kind of talked about this a little bit, the things that we just kind of want to keep on. He said, I don't want to change. You, you realize that Jesus is so much better than a sexual relationship or, or a new marriage or a new whatever it is, you know, fill in the blank, that Jesus is better. So for Paul, the God he hated became the God he was desperate for and needed. And friends, the God you might resist, the goads you might kick against, is your rescue, and it's your hope. So in Paul's testimony to Agrippa, he announces clearly the vision of hostility, his new identity, and finally his great hope. And this is in actually the beginning of his um, speech to, to Agrippa. This is in verses 4 through 8, and I'm almost, almost done. We'll close with this. He makes two things clear. <clears throat> in his testimony to Agrippa. First, that he's being persecuted for his hope in Jesus Christ. And second, that this hope that was promised, that this hope was promised by God to Agrippa's ancestors, so he should believe it too. <laughs> he makes this very clear in verses 22 through 23. Do you remember these words? I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. I'm not saying anything different than the things 
that the Jewish people want to kill me for. They, you should believe it too, friends. That's what he's saying. That the Messiah, and here's what the prophet said, the Messiah would suffer, and at, <clears throat> would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. You see? This, he's quoting the Old Testament. This is fantastic. Paul is telling Agrippa and devout Jews that the message he believes and sends is the same one th that was promised in the scriptures they themselves were devoted to. Do you see the irony here? They're devoted to the same set of scriptures he is, yet they want to cut his head off. And he's saying, basically, guys, look, this is in your scripture. Paul's telling Agrippa and devout Jews, come, believe. He, and he basically is referencing as, as the book of Isaiah, chapters 42, 49, 52, and 53. He starts quoting their scriptures, which tell them that the Messiah is coming, that he would suffer, that he would rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light to both Jew and Gentile, that he is the suffering servant who would suffer and die for sins, and that he is to be raised and highly exalted. He's basically saying, this is the man that you claim to believe in. He's come, he's Jesus. So he says in verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God rises, raises from the dead? It's in your own scriptures. I almost uh, titled this message, Believing Unbelief, <laughs> for this reason. Believing Unbelief, because of this verse. Because they claimed to believe something, but they actually didn't believe it. That's what's happening. And friend, you say, oh, that's horrible. How dare they? We do it too. You remember, remember that story in, in Acts, actually, where Peter's in jail and the whole church is praying, oh, God, help Peter to come out of jail. Do you guys remember this? And then all of a sudden, he's knocking at the front door. They run to the front door, and, they run, and, and I think it's Rhoda. And she runs back, and they say, okay, let's keep praying for him to come out of he's, she's out. he's out of jail. You are, he's there. Why is it? We have this tendency, even as Christians, to have believing unbelief. To say, I believe God, but then when he does something miraculous, we doubt it. <laughs> this is what was happening, I think, on a very deep and profound level to, the, to these um, Jewish leaders at the time. They had the scriptures that testify prophetically that Christ would come. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of their Old Testament, yet they still said, nope, it can't be him. Neither Agrippa nor any of his religious accusers should have questioned either that the Messiah would have come to rescue people from their sin, to be the light to the Gentiles, nor should they have found it difficult to accept that God could raise anyone from the dead. And friends, neither should we. That's our hope. And this should speak, by the way, to our modern kind of like proclivities. You say, well, I'm kind of modern. I'm, I think this is a lot of mythological stories, you know, that have moral lessons. Okay. But I still would say and challenge you to consider, why should any of you consider it incredible that God could raise from the dead? Friends, if there is a God, if he is the author of life, could he not raise the dead to life? And if Jesus died for the sins, and, and if this was Jesus, in other words, if this was Jesus Christ that, was, that died and was resurrected from the dead, doesn't that authenticate everything he said? Isn't that the greatest news? Isn't that the foundation of your hope? that your sins can be washed away because he's alive. He's alive. Amen? Turn to him. Trust him. Follow him. Hope in him. Let's pray. God, we pray, Lord, that as the church of Jesus Christ, that we would be invigorated by th these things.
and that we would be reminded that as Christians, we are called to do something with this message, just as Paul was. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see, and I am sending you to open the eyes of the blind, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. God, you saved Paul and put him on mission, and you save us and put us on mission. So God, I pray that we would remember that when we've come to faith in Jesus as a church, that we would stand to our feet, that we would realize that you're appearing to us to save us from our sin. Part of the purpose of that is so that we can take that message to our friends and neighbors and declare to them the hope that they can have too in Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, let me tell you something very simple. You need to empty yourself. You need to repent of your sin. You need to recognize that your, your sin has separated you from God, that it's heinous, and that there's nothing that you can do to pick yourself up. But Jesus Christ can. Can.